Hi everyone, I am Emily Landers and this is How'd She Do That? Today's episode is extremely special. I'm so eager to have you guys listen. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share an episode that I recorded two years ago. The original hope behind this episode was for a series on HSDT that was much more journalistic, uh, much more historical than most of our episodes. But after recording this conversation with Rena Quint, I couldn't quite fathom a series and other episodes that went to the depth of the experience of a Holocaust survivor. So this conversation and episode has been on my computer for the last two years. I feel as though now is the most appropriate time to share. Yesterday, like many of you, I watched the news without ceasing. My heart broke into a million pieces, and I truly am fearful for the future of our world. But in today's conversation, you'll hear the resilient story of Rena Quint. You'll get to know Rena. You'll also hear her mention things about COVID. Keep in mind the time frame we did record two years ago. You'll also hear that she welcomes all of us to Israel and that she hopes we will all visit. There's a few things in this episode that are just unimaginably hard to hear given the current situation, but it's just a must. And I think you all will be amazed as I was given the timing of our episode and the things that she shares, her story. Listen, take it in as I did and be inspired by this woman, her resilience, her humor, all of it. You can find Rena Quint's book, A Daughter of Many Mothers, Her Horrific Childhood and Wonderful Life on Amazon. Rena and I originally connected through Yad Vashim, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, and you all will hear her talk about her work later on in life with Yad Vashim. You will hear a lot of historical facts in today's episode that Rena shares, and I know that you're going to enjoy. Please forgive my mispronunciation of likely quite a few words. Of course, Rena was very gracious, and I know you all will be as well. I cannot begin to express my gratitude to Rena for her time uh, and for assisting and sharing her story. It's a very important story to listen to, and it is my great honor to introduce you all to Rena Quint today. I would also like to add that I will be reaching out to Yad Vashim to see how Rena is doing two years later. After speaking with her at 85, she's now 87 years old and is a resident of Israel. Enjoy today's conversation and take it to heart. Thank you, Rena, from all of us. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of How'd She Do That? I am so honored and thrilled today to welcome my new friend, Rena Quint. Rena was born as Frida Friedel Lechtenstein in 1935 in Pietrica, Poland, in 1939. The Nazis occupied her hometown, forever altering the course of her life. By 1942, both of Rena's parents had been murdered, and she was left alone, an orphaned, 
forced to endure horrific suffering in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. After liberation, Rena was adopted by a Jewish couple in the United States, and she went on to become a devoted mother and educator. For over 30 years, Rena has dedicated herself to telling her remarkable life story of survival and resilience, including details of the fascinating search for her identity. Rena, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, I am so honored to have you on today, and your story is truly incredible, and I'm just so grateful for your time. It's been so fun to connect with you a little bit offline. We've been trying to coordinate a Los Angeles to Israel time change, so I so appreciate your patience today, and I'd love to I'd love to just dive in and, and start at the beginning. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your childhood and perhaps what life was like uh, before the war for your family. Well, I didn't have much of a childhood. The war started when I was three and a half years old. Mm. I hardly remember my mother and my father, but I found a great many documents and, and manuscripts and certificates, including I found my birth certificate, my parents' marriage certificate, my wow. brother's birth certificates. I didn't know all that. But I did know, I, I also found that my mother had a prenuptial agreement in oh. 1930, which was something unheard of. Wow. And she came from a wealthy family. So I guess when we were in the ghetto, she was able to use some of her belongings to buy food and, mm. and keep us without starving. Wow. Um, and what were your what were your parents' jobs actually before the war and even before moving into the ghetto? What were they doing? My father was a tailor, but a tailor in those days was where a lot of men worked together and they made suits and coats and everything like a gentleman's tailor mm. for other people. My mother was way before her time. She had a, a paint store. Oh, but when wow. the ghetto started in September of 39, mm. life changed completely. When the Nazis came in, they made a fence around the Jewish section with barbed wire and all the Jewish people had to remain in that area. And anybody living outside of those few blocks had to move in. And mm. if you were lucky enough to have a brother or a sister or somebody who would let you share an apartment, you were lucky. And if you didn't, maybe you could find a synagogue or another public building. And if you couldn't and you were left in the street, you were taken out into the forest by the Nazis and they would shoot you into open holes that you had to dig yourself. So um, life got to be very bad. There wasn't enough food, and people were starving to death, and there wasn't enough heat, and it was very, very cold, and there wasn't enough medicine. So things were bad. But early on, they took my father to a slave labor factory, and um, um, I stayed in the ghetto with my mother and my two brothers, David and Joseph. You were lucky to be taken to a slave labor factory because if you would work, they, if, they, if the Germans needed you, they wouldn't take you to those places that people talked about and you thought there was just rumors because they said terrible things about Germans. They said that they were shooting people and beating people and gassing people. Nobody wanted to believe that. After all, the Germans were 
civilized, cultured, educated people. Mm. We had no idea that gassing turned out to be the truth and shooting turned Mm. out to be the truth, unfortunately. And how old are you at this time? Because your dad, he is taken to work. Like you said, they valued people who were able to work. How old are you at this time? And you're with your mother and two brothers. Is that correct? I was three and a half when the war started. Mm -hmm. And by the time my mother was taken, I was six. And that's when Mm -hmm. I ran to my father. Mm -hmm. What happened was that um, my father was taken away. And uh, we continued living in the ghetto. Mm -hmm. And then uh, sometimes later, they came banging down at the door, yelling, Rouse, Rouse, Schnell, you've got 10 minutes to pack up whatever you need and run down into this big square. Mm -hmm. 2,000 people had been gathered to bring into this square. And from there, we were beaten and herded like animals until we got to the synagogue. Mm -hmm. It was a big place. But 2,000 people couldn't get into one place. As many as they could, they got into that building. And then there was a little schoolhouse next door. They put people in there. And the ones who couldn't get in were taken out into the forest and and shot. I've been back to that forest where there are Mm. mass graves right now. Mm. So when I was, by the time I was six, I was in this room with my mother and my brothers And with all the papers and all the documents I have, I can't explain how this possibly could have happened. I'm sure as a six-year-old little girl and the baby of the family, I must have been holding on tightly to my mother. Mm. I'm sure she must have been holding on to me. I'm sure my brothers must have been holding on to her. And I'm sure she must have been holding on to them. Mm. I don't know how it happened. There was a man on the back of the door in the back of the synagogue, and he beckoned to me. My name was Fredja, or Fredel in Yiddish, and he told me to run. And I must have been really stupid, because <laughs> you don't run when the bullets were flying and people were being banged mm. over the head. Mm. But maybe my mother pushed me. Maybe God pushed me. I don't know where I got the nerve, where I got to be so brave where I got to be so stupid. I don't know how it happened, but I let go of my mother's hand. She let go of me, and I ran out. Wow. I don't understand how a little girl would leave her mother when it was so very, very frightening. Mm -hmm. But that was the last time I saw my mother and my brothers. That whole group of people, including the rabbi, the head of the community, were taken to Treblinka, which is one of the terrible extermination camps. There were six of them, all in Poland. They were taken there. And I often think of what was my mother thinking on that last trip in those terrible cattle cars. Was she worried about her little girl, whom she let go into this dangerous neighborhood? Was she worried about the little boys I don't, who she was taken to an unknown destination? I hope she's watching down from heaven, looking down, that I'm on a podcast, on a computer. (laughs) At the age of 85, I'm learning all these computer skills, which is really pretty amazing. And uh, and I'm telling my story and making sure that their story won't be forgotten. Mm. This man who told me to run, what was he supposed to do with me? 
So he took me to my father, who was working in a glass factory. There were three factories, glass, uh, woodworking, and tanning of leather. The glass factory was all men. And he took me there. And what was my father supposed to do with a little girl? So mm. at first he hid me. When that was longer possible, he found some boys' clothes. He cut my hair. He changed my name to from Fredja to Froyan, which is the boy's name. I learned to speak the language and the grammar of a boy. And I became wow. a man. Girls were useless. And boys under the age of 10, didn't, they didn't have much use of them either. But boys over the age of 10 have work. So I became a man of 10. Wow. And I worked. And my job was bringing water, like I, like I was a water carrier with other boys. And more than anything I remember, there was these big, vicious German shepherd dogs. And every time one of those dogs would take a bite out of somebody, it would like a death sentence. Because if you couldn't lift your arm and it couldn't work, they would shoot you. If it got infected, there were no bandages, there were no medicine, they would shoot you. It was always scary of those dogs. There was very little food. It was very hot because when the glass is being melted, the heat was working all the time. It, 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 it was an impossible situation, and I don't know how I possibly could have survived it. But I'm here to tell the story that I did. Mm. Wow. And this at this point, and I want to backtrack because there is a, a date actually that we do have attached to to the day you were separated from your mother. You can confirm that was actually October 14th, 1942, wasn't it? Well, I don't know that I didn't remember the date, but that's when that big action took place. Wow. So in the yearbooks that they wrote, they right. said that that's where they were taken. So I imagine that was the date. Wow. And so many pieces of your childhood, it is it is people who have either shared or you're looking at your childhood through the history books. I mean, do you remember, are there specific memories that you have of what life was like? You remember the dogs at the glass factory with oh, your yes. father you and uncle? Forget, you, you never remember forget that. the dogs. You never forget the fear. You don't forget mm. the cold. You don't forget the starvation. But the fear of those dogs never, ever leaves you. And mm. now when I see a little dog, I, I'm okay with them. But if I see a big dog, it always comes back, and I try very hard to stay away from them. I mean, being in that, I also developed spots one day when I was in the factory, and probably what it was was like chicken pox or measles. I don't know oh. what it was. Oh. But that's what most children get at that age. I, I'm wrinkled now. I'm an old lady wrinkled, <laughs> but I don't have, but I don't have all those spots. You know, I, my face isn't completely uh, scarred from that, and that's a miracle. Also, a lot of things that I have. I went to the dentist the other day, and I have all my teeth. And you have six-year-old molars and twelve-year-old. At six years, I didn't have milk. I didn't brush my teeth. I didn't have vegetable. I didn't. I didn't wow. do anything that you're supposed to have. And he says, you know, beats me. That's genetics. So I guess oh I got something God. from my parents that was 
very worthwhile. And I heard too, I, I was listening to your story and, and again, it, it's incredible. And I, even earlier when you were speaking uh, about your mom, I have no doubt she's amazed by you navigating all of this technical. And you guys, those of you who are listening, again, a friendly reminder, Rena is 85 and joining me today. It's, um, I mean, we're going to continue to dive into your story, Rena, but it is, it's incredible just the short portion you've shared. Um, I did hear, uh, you know, you were sharing uh, a memory from the glass factory that perhaps you could share a little bit more about. There was a time that was it the men would hide you underneath their blankets at night. Yes. What, what was that story that you've shared? Well, one day I was, I call those men uncles. They were all uncles. Yes. And one day, I guess a German guard came in and this man took me under his blanket mm. and he told me to be very quiet. And I guess I was sleeping and didn't realize, you know, when you're sleeping and you're moving and you don't know what's right, happening. Right. And I was moving and he tried to keep his legs, his feet on me to keep me quiet. And luckily the German guard, the soldier didn't see me and he left. But when he left, this man took me and he shook me and he says, you were told to be quiet. You were told to behave. If you had found me, we would have all been killed. Do you know how you could have gotten us in danger? I felt so bad at that time. I didn't mean to be so bad. And even mm. to this day, I hope he forgives me. I don't know what happened to that man, whether mm. he survived or not. But I must tell you that the men and women and people that I met, so many people helped keep me alive. I could not wow. possibly have done it from the age of three and a half to nine and a half, being in those terrible situations without people helping me. And you very often hear that everybody in the camps was for themselves. I can't say that. People mm. always, always were for me. And even to this day, I have people helping me all the time. Oh. Well, it, it's an amazing uh, thing to look back on. I'm sure your own life, and to see, yeah, you would you would say perhaps. I mean, it's got to be the hand of God that was able to bring these I different people. Oh, I believe to... each one of my six mothers was like an angel sent by God, and when she finished her job, God took her back because mm. none of them survived except for the last woman who who um, adopted me in America. She wow. and her husband. Wow. Uh, well, well, let's dive back in because it, I, I know I know your story, but my listeners don't know. So, so at this time, as we're discussing, you are actually at the glass factory, pretending to be a boy, pretending to be not only just a boy, but four or five years older than you actually are. How long were you at the the factory? And then, do tell us what what came next for for you and your father. I don't know exactly how, how long I was there, but it may have been as much as three years. But it may not have all been in the factory because we were sent to other camps to oh, work wow. also. But one day, um, oh, there was again a roundup. There were these roundups and calls all the time. And we were taken to the Umschlagplatz, which is the place where they have the cattle cars waiting to take human cargo on. And we had to run to get to these cattle cars, and then they had no steps, no ramps, and everybody had to push everybody else up. And we pushed in 80 to 100 people in a car like that. And when the cars were filled to capacity, they slammed the doors shut. It was 
black in there. It was cold. There was nothing to eat. There was nothing to drink. And there was one pail, which was going to be for a toilet for 80 to 100 people. And you couldn't give, even get over there to use it. And if you did, how long would one pail last for that many? So the whole thing slopped over. And the smell, stench in the car was, I don't know how anybody survived it. There were people who died. There were people who were screaming, people who went crazy. It was it was just an impossible situation. Um, sometimes the cars only took a half a day or a day to get to the camps they were going to. Some places, like people coming from Greece or from Tunis, it could take three days in these terrible cattle cars. I don't know how long I was, but I was in other camps also. The reason I know I was this is not because I remember the names of all these camps, but because in 1981, there was a gathering of Holocaust survivors, and I went to it, and I wrote to a place called Arlson, which I learned about, and they wrote to me exactly where I was born, my parents' names, my brother's names, um, wow. what camps I was in, case closed, child adopted in America. So I got a lot of documentation from them. Wow. A lot of history. Not that I remember it myself, but I found. And then the book person, Barbara Sofer, who helped me write a book, yes. A Daughter of Many Mothers, she found things for me in Sweden. I'll tell wow. you about that when we get to it. Okay, great. Wow. And so you're on these, gosh, in this, I mean, ugh, just going to say, you're, yeah, you're in these cattle cars with, at this time, you are still with your father, correct? Right. And then okay. we crossed from the Polish to the German border. Hmm. And when we crossed the border, the doors were flung open and we had to jump down and there was snow on the ground. And it seems to me there was always snow on the ground. It was always freezing cold. And we used the snow to eat it because we were oh, so wow. starved. And we used the snow to drink it. And we used the light. There was a sky. There were clouds. And in the cattle cars, there was just blackness. And we used this to look around to see who was there. Our camp was a man's camp. But the other two camps had men and women and some children. And while we were getting used to this new situation, I was with my father and my uncle. Germans on motorcycles with a sidecar came rolling up. Two Germans, German soldiers at one time. Mm. And they made announcement on bullhorns. You're being taken to camps. Men on one side, women on the other. My father realized that I couldn't go with him to a camp because the first place that you have to go when you go into a camp is into the showers for mm. several reasons. The most important reason is because we were so filthy, filthy with dirt, filthy with feces, filthy with, with bugs, with lice, with fleas, with vermin, anything that you can imagine. The Germans were clean and immaculate. They didn't want to be around people so disgusting like we were. That's the main reason. But another reason, if anybody had anything like money or jewelry or a diamond, maybe they could hide it someplace. But if you have to go into a shower and get completely undressed, there's no place to hide anything. Mm -hmm. So the Germans felt that they, they knew better. And we get, and my father realized that if I, get, I would get undressed, 
they would see I'm not one of the men. And they would kill me, they would kill him, and anybody who tried to help me. Mm. So he gave me some pictures of our family from my mother, father, and my brothers. And he promised to meet me after the war in Pietrico. Mm. By this time, the reason we had crossed over from the border is because the Germans tried to hide all the atrocities. They didn't want to have any traces because the... Um, the Allies, meaning the Americans, the British, and the um, the, the the Russians, mm-hmm. were coming in, and um, he gave me the pictures, and he said he would meet me. He promised, he promised, he promised, he promised. Well, he didn't keep his promise. Um, I I found a train schedule, one of those places that I told you, Arlson. I found a lot of information. And mm-hmm. one of us was scheduled that he went to Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany and the mm-hmm. women went to Bergen-Belsen. But before we went, he met a school teacher who had come from one of the other camps and he asked her whether she would keep an eye on me. And she took my hand. Why she did it, maybe she was a good woman, maybe she needed me, maybe her her daughter died, maybe, I don't know maybe what, all I know is that she took me and she became my new mother. And all I know is that she's school teacher. I don't remember what she looked like. I don't remember her name, but I do know she saved my life. And we went walking. Wow. And we walked in the snow. First, we took a train. We took another train to get to the area of Bergen-Belsen, which is in Germany and Lower Saxony, snow on the ground. And then when we get out of of those trains, we had to walk in the snow. If somebody sat down for a minute, they were shot. If somebody looked around the wrong way, they were shot. As you were walking, there were people lying there, either dead or bleeding or crying, and there were bodies all over and you just walked on and on until we got to Bergenbells. Wow. And so you're walking through, do you have these, I mean, you, you have vivid m- memories of this or, or are you able to say, no, it, it's a little more of, of a blur of, of a child's mind? No, I have memories, but until I got all my papers in 1981, first some papers, and then 1989, when I went back to Poland for the first time and I found my birth certificate and I went to see my house and I met the woman living in the house and she told me about my father. And on the side of the house, there's still a mezuzah, which is a symbol that Jewish people use. And I found the glass factory and and I've been back to Bergen-Belsen. So all the things that I'm telling you now, everything sort of came back. So right. I don't know that I I I, I would have uh, between the documents and going back to those places, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and much has has kind of come back to the forefront. How old were you when you went back to visit Poland? Oh, in nineteen eighty nine, I was about fifty. Wow. Oh, and decided that that it was time. Well, I'm eager to hear 
more about that, but but wow, I mean, at this point in the story, you are headed into Bergen-Belsen with your your new mom, the school teacher whose name we we don't know, yeah, and she what disappeared. she disappeared. All she my dis- mothers disappeared. Oh, I don't know wow. if they died or if they uh, were shot or I don't know what happened to her, but she wasn't there. But when we got into Bergen-Belsen. Just the way my father had predicted, we had to get undressed and leave everything there. Mm-hmm. Some people may have had some jewelry or things. All I had was my pictures that my father gave me. Mm. And I was holding them tightly in my hand and kissing them and knowing that they were important to me. It was the only thing I had in my family. And one of the German soldiers saw that I was holding something in my hand and maybe he thought it was a diamond or, or money or something. He pried up my hand. All it was was a picture. He must have been very disappointed. He tore it up and threw it away. Mm. So that the last picture that I had of my mother and father and my brothers, I no longer had. So I have nothing to show me what my mother looked like. Or did my brother? Do my children look like anybody in my family? Do my mm-hmm. grandchildren look like anybody? My great grandchildren? Mm-hmm. I have absolutely no idea. Wow. When we went into the showers, they were cold water. They were not gas, like in the extermination camps. Bergen-Belsen is a concentration camp. And when we came out, we were shivering because we were cold. We were scared. We were humiliated. This woman stole a black coat that somebody else had left. And she could have been killed for doing such a dastardly thing. She kept that coat and her body heat around me. And I think that saved me. Mm. And I'm sure I owe her my life. But unfortunately, I have no way of thanking her because I never saw her again. And then we brought into these terrible barracks where you had like a thousand people living in one area and there were they, they were at one point like three tiered barracks but by the time we came they were mostly broken and you were sleeping on the floor and every five or six women would have gotten a blanket to cover themselves five or six women had one blanket to cover themselves you can imagine the very cold and if somebody died you just took that blanket put the body in there and pulled the body out and threw the body someplace on the vast expanse of the Bergen-Belsen grounds. They were very big. Mm -hmm. And you went back to see who else was still alive. And if that person had something to wear, you would grab it because it was so cold. So you'd be able to put something on top of what you had. Mm -hmm. We had like like a uniform, an old, I don't know what, what was called, garb. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, every day, the most important thing was food. And the food we got <clears throat> was old food made out of, it smelled like garbage. It was made out of garbage, old mm. potato peels and turnips. And when people first came from other camps, they said they wouldn't even taste, they, they couldn't even taste it. But after mm. the first day, you could say you didn't want to taste it. But after being so hungry, it was it was the most wonderful thing. You either had mm. that or you had nothing. So you felt lucky to be able to get a piece of potato in that garbage that was swimming around there. Um, every day, hundreds of people died. 
and we just pulled them out and threw them out with other other people. But one day, I was very sick, as everybody else was with typhus. Typhus comes from lice and fleas. And of course, when you're so close and you don't take baths for months and months and you don't change your clothes, of course, everybody had lice. It's not just in the hair. It's in whatever clothes you have and whatever part of your body you have it. And the lice bite, and when they bite, they, they, they you get this sickness. And when you have that sickness, you just lie there and you can't see and you can't hear and you can't move. You just... I just knew I was going to die. Everybody was dying. Everybody around you was dying. And one day, I was sick with this sickness, and I don't know how it happened, but somebody took me outside on a pile of dead bodies. It's on the first page, if you'd like to read it or if you'd like me to read it. Barbara, the woman who um, who wrote about it, started my book with, with my being on this pile of of dead people and how they got me out of that. And um, I, I knew I was going to die. The woman next to me died. The woman next to her died and everybody was going to die. Oh. But something happened that day that never happened before. Um, people were starting to walk faster and speak faster. And some people were running. It was very unusual. Nobody ever walked above uh, beyond a shuffle. And what had happened was the British had come in. Wow. And they made an announcement saying, we are the British Army. We have come to free you. You're free. You're free. You can do whatever you want. Well, what do I want to do? I don't have a mother. I don't have a father. I don't speak the language. I can't get up. I can't see. I can't hear. Mm -hmm. The British had a very difficult time. And the first thing they had to do was bury 10,000 unburied bodies that were lying around in the camp because they were sm- in, a, in a place like Auschwitz and Maidaning, you smelled gas, but in Bergen-Belsen, you smelled death because death was all around. So the first thing they had to do was build huge um, ditches, holes, graves, and and they buried people in mass graves. When you go to Bergen-Belsen now, and I've been there, it's like a, a mound, a tell. Like archaeologists, you know, when they dig a city, then they leave this tell. Yes. And they're all around Bergen-Belsen there. And after the British buried the people, they tried to feed people who could walk on their own. And um, 14,000 people died after the war. According to the British, 2,000 died because they ate wrong food. Oh. And because um, if people haven't eaten for so long, you can't give them normal food. They have to eat very slowly and very gingerly and carefully. And then after that, they tried to take care of people like me who were very sick, but maybe with the proper care, they could be helped. Mm-hmm. And they put me on a stretcher. And they brought me into a makeshift hospital and they burnt down all the barracks that the Jewish people were in. But the barracks that the Germans used, they made those into makeshift hospitals. Those were made out of bricks and uh, 
they were made, but the, the 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 barracks that the Jews were in were made out of wood, mm. and they were so filled with lice and fleas and 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 every kind of dirt you can imagine that they burnt all that down. So there's nothing left of Bergen-Belsen except these mounds that I tell you of that. And then they took people like me into a hospital. And because I was one of the lucky ones, 6,000 people were invited to Sweden to recuperate because Sweden had not been fighting with Germany. They were neutral. And I was taken by train to a place called Lubeck and from there by ship to Stockholm in Sweden. And I have a chart that from Stockholm, I was taken to a DP, a displaced persons camp. Wow. And I met a new mother, and then she disappeared after a while. But I was very sick, so I was brought into a hospital in a place called Hasselholm, H-A-S-S-E-L-H-O-L-M. And Barbara, the woman who helped me write the book, mm-hmm. found my chart, found wow. my temperature chart, and found that I had typhus and diphtheria and some sort of lung thing. Amazing how much you can find if you know how to do the research. Yes. And um, so I was in the hospital for a while, and a beautiful young Swedish couple came to visit me, and they brought me candy canes, and they brought me a doll. Oh. And they brought me clothes, and they wanted to take me home and adopt me. Mm. I thought that was the best thing that ever happened to me, and I wanted very much to go with them. Mm. But the people around me said that I was Jewish. I didn't know what it meant to be Jewish. Mm. But they said that um, all the Jewish children would be taken to Palestine, and in Palestine I would meet my mother, my father, and my brothers. I didn't know my mother and father and brothers were no longer alive, but they said I should go to Palestine. So that's where I wanted to go. But these people said that, that, that Palestine is for the Jewish children. But when I got better from the hospital, I was sent to a second DP camp, a displaced persons camp, mm-hmm. where I met a new mother. Her name was Anna, uh-huh. and she had a son who was 15, Sigmund was his name, and a daughter, Fanny who was nine and a half. Her brother had sent her tickets and all the papers she needed to come to the United States. Somebody had to sponsor you, like the problems the United States is having now with Mm -hmm. immigration. So in 1945 and 46, it was very difficult to get into the United States. Somebody had to sponsor you. And Anna's brother sponsored three people. Anna, her son Sigmund, and their daughter, Fanny. While they were waiting to go to the United States, and I was waiting to go to Palestine. By the way, the reason I said Palestine and not Israel Mm -hmm. is because in 1945, there was no Israel. And just imagine had Israel been born Mm. in 1938 instead of 1948. Ten little years earlier, how many Jews could have been saved? Mm. They had a place to go to. No country wanted us. No people wanted us. And we didn't have a state. That's why Israel is so very, very important. And that's why we are so lucky to have a state now. Mm. Anyway, um, she was going to go to the United States. While they were waiting, this little girl, Fanny, died. 
her death was my luck. Mm. And Anna, who had all the papers, asked me if I'd like to be her daughter and go with her to America. And all the people thought what a lucky thing it was that she wanted me. So I said, yes, I want to go. And we went on a ship and we sang and there was lots of food and everybody was very happy. And we saw the Statue of Liberty and houses like, you know, everything was just wonderful. And I had a new mother Mm -hmm. and a new brother. And when we came there, they looked up our records and it said that my name is Fanny Phillipstall. I'm the daughter of Anna Phillipstall. So everything was perfect. Mm. And Anna's family picked us up and brought us to a place called Lindenhurst, Long Island, where they had an apartment for us. And I met children there who were very curious about meeting this person from a different planet, different world. Right. And they started teaching me English. And one day it was book, and one day it was girl and boy and water. Every day I learned a different word until I started learning English. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn to tie my shoelaces, and I had to learn to hold a fork. I didn't know wow. anything. Wow. I didn't know anything. And in the summertime, we went up to Bungalow Colony in Fallsburg, New York, up in the Catskill Mountains. And I went swimming and I went to camp, and I picked blueberries, and I learned to ride a bicycle. Life mm. was wonderful, and I had this wonderful mother. But one day, I came home from camp, and she disappeared. She wasn't there. I wasn't so worried because all the women were very good to me, and they all gave me food, and I had a bed, and nobody was being shot. But then a few days later, Anna's family came, and everybody was crying, and they said, come, we're going to someplace. And they took me to a cemetery. Anna had died, just like all my other mothers. She had died. So many people after the war were so sick, emotionally, physically, and they took us there, and there was one hole in the ground. Everybody was crying, except me. Maybe I didn't know how to cry. Maybe I didn't know you were supposed to cry. Mm-hmm. Maybe I thought they didn't. Maybe they thought I didn't love Anna, but I did. But I didn't know what was happening. I had never been to a funeral. In Bergen-Belsen, if somebody died, you just threw them out like mm-hmm. you throw out the garbage. And they buried Anna, one person in one little hole. They took us home. And Jewish people said shivers seven days of mourning. And now they had a problem. That family brought over Anna, who brought over her son and daughter. But now that she was no longer alive, they really didn't want me. And they didn't know what to do with me. And there was a lot of discussion. And one of the people in that family knew a family in Brooklyn, New York, who had no children. And I guess they made contact with them. And they asked if they'd like to meet me. And they invited me to come to them for a Shabbat, for a Saturday. And I went there, and I was told to behave. And I don't know exactly what behaving meant, but I went there. And when I got there, there was a wonderful smell of chicken soup Friday, ready getting ready for Shabbat. But the only thing that wasn't so good is that they had a little dog. And if you remember, I am terrified of big dogs. Oh, but this was a little yes. dog. 
and they saw that I was scared. I wasn't going to show them because maybe they liked the dog better than me. Oh. If they didn't like me, would they send me back? Would they send me to an orphanage? Would they send me in the streets? What would happen to me? Mm. Uh, can you imagine you have to start thinking of that when you're nine and a half years old? Well, I didn't have to think of it for long because they liked me. <laughs> and the next day, they asked me the same question that had been asked from me many times. Would you like to stay and be our daughter? Oh. And not only did I get a mother, but I got a father with that mother. <laughs> and they lived in a beautiful house, and I had my own room, and they got me clothes, <laughs> and and, and um, they got me toys. And they took me to a public school, which was not very successful because the teachers there, they didn't know how to treat me. The mm. first day, they put me into the third grade because by this time I was almost 10 years old. Right. And the teacher gave a spelling test. How do I know how to take a spelling test but I don't even know the letters <laughs> of the right. words? So oh she decided I was cheating, and she was very upset with me and called the principal. And the principal realized that I couldn't be cheating. I was too dumb for that. <laughs> and he put me up into the fourth grade where there was Ms. McKinney. These, this is what you used to call old maid teachers. I don't know if <laughs> you have people like that around nowadays, but um, they really were. And they were mean and they didn't know how to treat me. Mm. And my parents said, okay, this is not a place for you. And they took me out and put me into a private school where the people were more um, understanding and I got private tutors and I learned English. So English is my, my mother tongue. Now when you listen wow. to me, I speak English pretty well. Yes. And, um, and uh, I didn't speak any English there. And uh, that I went through, I finished elementary school. I went to high school. I had music lessons. I went traveling. I went dating. And then I met this wonderful, wonderful man who just was the best. <laughs> and we were married. We were married for 59 years. Wow. He passed away two years ago. Wow. And he, he every day wrote me a note. I have four of those in my book. <laughs> and he thanked God for saving me for him. Wow. And he thanked me for marrying him. <laughs> and every week he would write, every day he would write me a love letter and put it into a book or someplace. <sighs> and luckily I saved all of them. So I, I can remember we had a wonderful, wonderful life. With <sighs> them. In 1981, there was a gathering of Holocaust survivors. And my family said, we were living in Brooklyn, New York. My family said, why don't we go? Maybe somebody else survived just the way you did. So we came and we really found a lot of um, a lot of information that uh, that I'm telling you about. Wow! And uh, it was it was really quite amazing. And in '84, we met Aliyah. We came to live here, mm -hmm. and I volunteered in Yad Vashem yes. first in the art museum and the historical museum. And then in '89, I went back to Poland, where I found my birth certificate. I found all these documents that I told you about. And when I came back. The people in Yad Vashem asked me to give testimony. And now um, when Emily asked me to do this, we never met, but I think it's very important mm. whenever I'm asked, because I think that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of Holocaust deniers and a lot of people who don't know very much about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of stories or thousands, but if you hear one story and you said, I heard it from somebody who was there, 
then you tell it to somebody else, and we must make sure that this will never be forgotten. Absolutely. We must never let more like this happen again. We must take it under our own. We have to love as much as we can. We have to um, take care of each other. We have to support the poor. Uh, We had this terrible COVID-19 now. Hopefully it's going to be over and life will get back to it. It was very difficult being in the house alone. Thank God I have four children, 22 grandchildren. Oh. And so far, we have 35 great-grandchildren, oh, my and we're expecting some more. So thank God I've had a good life, just that my life started 10 years later than most people. Absolutely. If anybody has any questions, if you could possibly give them to me, I'd love to answer them. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, uh, Rena, I want to first off, and, and you've done such a, a wonderful, cohesive job of of the a big chunk of your life when you did, you met your husband, and I know you were actually a teacher for some time and went on to be highly educated, and, and the life that you have had since your childhood it has been really impressive. So I do want to share that for my listeners, you all can learn more about Rena. You can read her book and and hear some of the details of of your life after that. You just mentioned that you have. Correct me if I'm wrong. Twenty two grandchildren and thirty five. Thirty five great grandchildren. What so do far, so far, so far. <laughs> many more to come. What do many your children? <laughs> Yes. What do your children and your grandchildren think of you and, and, and you sharing your story? I'm sure they're so proud of you. Well, they are. They're amazed that I can do this computer business. I'm amazed but, as well. But uh, they have come to help me because sometimes the other day when I had this blue jeans business, they never heard of it and we had to find it together. But um, And I never heard of a podcast. I didn't do that, but you told me exactly what to do and they're okay. <laughs> And and um, in in Israel, children in high school have to write about a Holocaust survivor or about somebody who came in 1948 in the War of Independence. They wow. have to have, but and so very often my grandchildren bring their friends and their friends' uh. friends to interview me. And this year, uh, it's been on Zoom, and oh, it's yeah. done. A few people come together, and they have. I really prefer having the questions than just speaking yes. but i like seeing people and this i don't i really can't say that i enjoy just speaking to a bare screen <laughs> yes. or even speaking to you know to faces yes uh, i invite all of you to come to israel if you buy my book my address is in there otherwise emily has it yes. and come and 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 visit us. There's lots to do, lots to see. Don't come now because the airports are still not terribly friendly. Yes, and yes. I'm not sure flying is such a good idea. Wait for a while. But <laughs> every religion is represented in in Jerusalem, and there's so much to see for everybody. Oh. It's a wonderful place to have a vacation. Wonderful place to bring children, oh. and people are extremely friendly and 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 helpful and um, we welcome you oh well thank you rena thank you for the invitation and you all i'll tell you this uh rena and i have spoken on the phone a few times uh before our recording now and one of the first things you said to me rena was when are you coming to israel so we so appreciate that invitation 
Have you I, ever been? I have not yet been. My Some of my family members have been, and they love it. So I do hope to come and see you soon, for sure. First, I hope so. First chance. Uh, well, Rena, I do want to ask you just one more question because I, I think it's important and I love everything that you've shared. And I, I want to just, again, thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with you today is a true honor on my end. Um, but I'd love, I'd love just for you to, to leave one last word of wisdom to my listeners. Um, I'm, I'm curious, over your life, which has been a, an, a very full one, but also uh, lots of tragedy as well, um, what is perhaps the greatest lesson that you have learned? I think how important people are to each other. And every person that you ever meet, you have to be nice to them. And it always, always pays back. They're always nice to you, even if you've never met them before. It, it, it goes there. And I learned being... Um, there were certain things I could not do before my husband passed away, and all of a sudden I learned to do them. And being being in the house all by myself for a year, I speak to my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren and friends daily. Mm-hmm. I speak to them often. I speak on Zoom. But you have to learn to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, whether you like it or not. Mm. And you will, you have to realize how important people around you are and how important the belief in, in, in the, the different beliefs that you have, whether it's in religion or the people around you. Mm-hmm. And that war doesn't help anybody. Everybody loses in a war. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, if people would realize in most countries, we have enough food. We don't have to fight about food. We don't have to fight about water. We don't have to fight about land. Why are we building the, this ammunition? And why are we so worried of what's going to happen in the future? Why can't we just work on getting the best for everybody around mm. and trying to make the world the better life that there would be for everybody? Because everybody would benefit from it, and everybody loses when we have tension and war. Everybody. Mm. Well, so well said. I I have chills, and I've had chills multiple times <laughs> during this conversation, Rena. I cannot thank you enough again and again. I, I will be thinking of our conversation. I will be thinking of you often, and I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. I'm I'm eager to share it, and I'm so grateful again that you would take the time to join me. Well, so I, thank you. I can't show you a picture of my book, but it has me at the age of ten when I came to the United States, <sighs> and on the other side, it has me now when my husband made me a surprise birthday party, <sighs> and and it's called a daughter of many mothers and it's in amazon okay. and um it's 20 dollars in amazon if anybody wants it um it's it's a good book for yourself it's a good book for um for teenagers and up yes and if you ever need to if you go to somebody's house for dinner or if you need any kind of a gift it, it's worthwhile but if anybody has any questions Please, Emily, give them my email. Wonderful. And just write something like from Emily, because I don't open my email if I don't know who it is. Good, yes. And, um, or or call me. Call me on the telephone. That might be the best. Wonderful. So we can really chat. And if you call me on WhatsApp, it's free. Yes. Oh, yes. I'll have to add your I'll add your WhatsApp number and I'll say hello there. That's a great idea yeah, well, as well. I didn't call you on WhatsApp because I didn't have your number and I had to do a plus one. 
Oh, no. Where are you? I don't even know where you are. Remember, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, Los Angeles. Okay. Yes. I have a granddaughter in Los Angeles now, too. I remember you telling me that. Yes. Uh, well, I, I do love, and, and those of you, again, who are listening, just to touch on that, do check out Rena's book. Like she said, it's on Amazon. It would be a great gift. It would be a great read for you. And we can support Rena in that way. And perhaps if you take Rena up on that visit to Israel, I'm sure you would sign copies should we bring one along. Yes, I would be glad to sign anything, but you can buy them from my house so you don't have to bring it <laughs> oh even better <laughs> yes. well rena thank you so much for your time today this has been a true gift thank you now what do i do just exit out yes so i will isn't that the best ending thank you all for listening to today's episode of HSDT. Very different than usual, very important, and I'm very grateful. Again, you all can find Rena's book on Amazon, A Daughter of Many Mothers, Her Horrific Childhood and Wonderful Life by Rena Quint.